LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Thomas Roberts who joins us to discuss his new book, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, which explores scientific and medical research on the emerging use of psychedelics to enrich mind, morals, spirituality and creativity. As psychedelic psychotherapy gains recognition through research at universities and medical establishments, the other beneficial uses of psychedelics are also beginning to be recognised and researched. Exploring the bright future of psychedelics, Dr. Roberts reveals how new uses for entheogens will enrich individuals as well as society as a whole by raising individual and business attitudes away from self-centeredness, improving daily life with strengthened feelings of meaningfulness and spirituality, and helping us understand and redesign the human mind. Dr. Roberts envisions a future where you will seek psychedelic therapy not only for psychological reasons, but also for personal growth creative problem solving, improved brain function, and heightened spiritual awareness. Our psychedelic future is on the horizon, a future that harnesses the full potential of mind and spirit, and this book outlines a path to reach it. Hello and welcome Thomas, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, I'm looking forward to talking about this. Now Thomas, today we're going to discuss some of the material in your new book, the psychedelic future of the mind, how entheogens are enhancing cognition, boosting intelligence and raising values. Uh, Before we dive into that, perhaps you could just tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to be interested in psychedelics and psychedelic research. Well, it took a couple of exposures for it to take. During the summer of 1967, which is known as the Summer of Love, I was driving from Connecticut to become a graduate student at Stanford. And the radio, of course, is full of uh, psychedelic songs, including when you go to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair. Well, I was going to San Francisco, but with the idea of getting a Ph.D. in education and an MBA in uh, business. And, of course, there was a lot of talk in the air. One of my uh, students uh, was talking about his psychedelic experiences. Then that sort of faded away. I was doing my dissertation on Abraham Maslow's needs hierarchy, and there was a professor named Willis Harmon um, who was teaching a course called uh, Graduate Special, and Harmon had been doing some work on uh, Maslow, so I thought I'd take a course with him to find out about Maslow. Well, the course was about the human uh, potential, and one day in class, a married student couple. Let me say, this was a, a, a class that was so much in demand. I uh, had to wait uh, three semesters, uh, three quarters, rather, to get enrolled in it. And it was, in a, it was open only to graduate students at Stanford, but from any major. So 
It was a wonderful collection of people from all these different fields. And then one day in class, a married student couple was talking about their first psychedelic experience and how they watched flowers move and so forth. And um, my view up to then was sort of the standard view of a drug addict, you know, with long fingernails and very scraggy-looking guy hanging out on a street corner or falling down. Yet these were very confident graduate students at Stanford. And probably two-thirds of the course, if if not more, sort of nodded their heads, and uh, it was clear that they understood and had experienced things themselves. So that didn't fit in with what I thought I knew of, so that made me quite curious about it. Um, and then one of the students had a, a ticket to a lecturer who was coming to visit, a guy I didn't know about, and he was unable to attend, so he gave me the ticket. So a week or two later, I went to a lecture, and I heard Alan Watts talk about religions, East and West, and the role of psychedelics in spiritual development. And that just blew my mind away. I mean, there was this very erudite scholar-priest talking about this stuff. So that made me wonder, you know, about it. And then I had my first psychedelic experience in the uh, in February of 1970. This was my last year at Stanford. I was still working on my dissertation. And during that experience, I, mean, I really knew this is something interesting. I don't know what it is, but it is, it's fascinating. So that really, it took several exposures for me to kind of get into this field, although then I got into it just recreationally. And then in the summer of 1972, I was invited to a conference in Iceland, and it was held there to bring speakers from North America and from Europe together, and it was on psychobiology and transpersonal psychology, but with an emphasis largely on psychedelics. And the speakers included Stan Groff and Houston Smith and Joseph Campbell. And that's when I realized I could get into the psychedelics from a scholarly perspective, not just a recreational perspective. So all those things sort of fit together and set my personal professional life on its course. During the 20th century, I mean, of course, there's been a history of psychedelics used by humankind as far back as we we, we can know, really. But during the 20th century, the status of psychedelics fluctuated somewhat, and there was the aforementioned period in the 1960s when things seemed to be blossoming and opening up. And then it got very shut down in the 70s, demonized as basically decadent, you know, purely recreational. But there has been research, official and unofficial, going on for a long time. And in the early 90s, some of the listeners will know people like Rick Strassman did some um, government-sanctioned research but there's definitely a resurgence, resurgence of interest now in psychedelics, not just from a, a personal growth point of view, but from an actual scholarly uh, point of view and for the therapeutic value that they can have. And, you know, your book is just one of many. And even if you just base it on the number of books being published, you know, this resurgence is very pronounced. Yeah, it, yeah, it certainly is. Uh, one of the things I did was to um, collect books into an online, online archive books that had to do with the religious use of psychedelics. And I originally thought I'd get a couple dozen. I stopped at 550 in order to write my own book. And um, since then, uh, books have been coming out very regularly. That's one of the really gratifying things about the field is you mentioned the number of, of new researchers coming on it. And the number of um, young, very dedicated, very qualified researchers is really gratifying. By young to me, and that means includes people, you know, in their 20s, 30s, and, and 40s. 
but they're very highly skilled and very clear and scientific in their work. And, of course, research methods have improved a lot over the last 40 years, so they're using much better statistics and better instrumentation. And The whole thing is done really very professionally. That's really gratifying to see all these sort of new young minds working very seriously in the field. Some listeners maybe just focus on what's popularly put out in the mainstream. That is that um, psychedelics are just one branch of recreational drug usage, not for most people, and there's a reason why they're illegal, etc., etc. But even in the the recreational end now is leaning more towards um, personal growth and some kind of transcendental experience. We see this all over the world, but particularly in the popularity of um, one that I suppose the headline ones would be ayahuasca tourism that we now see a growth in. Yes, I'm um, quite wary of ayahuasca tourism myself. I know there are some people in the, in South America who are being very responsible about this. Um, I I led a or co-led a two-week retreat once at a, a center in Brazil. Um, but there are also people who are saying, "Oh, you know, we can make some quick money on this. Let's pretend to be shamans, and you know, and see if we can uh, attract some North Americans and Europeans." Um, and I don't know enough about who the good people are and who aren't, but I know that there are both. And so, but also that 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 tourism, the drug tourism, particularly in this case ayahuasca, shows the interest that general culture has in the field. And um, I hope it just doesn't get out of hand and and you know damage the responsible work that's going on. Well, that's always been the danger, hasn't it? That was the problems that researchers are run into. You'll know this very well over, over the past few decades is just butting up against, um, you know, government and, and kind of political motivations. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, of course, drug laws, uh, at least in my view, are primarily political laws, not health laws, uh, particularly the Drug Enforcement Administration in the United States. It's a political organization, not a health organization. A law presents itself with a health um, face on it. Um, but fortunately, government agencies are, are beginning to recognize that there are these very qualified researchers, like the people at Johns Hopkins and Bellevue Hospital and elsewhere, who are really doing excellent work in the field. And I just hope that it doesn't get you know, too wild on the streets. There's a funny angle on this, and that's that I teach undergraduates who are basically 20 years old. And for them, um, psychedelics are sort of like your father's drug or your grandfather's drug. So it's not really the, the hot thing that it was, you know, a generation or two ago. And this makes them not doing it so often and being more worried about what they do. do. And, of course, there are all the new tumble drugs that are coming out that they'll get into instead. But I think this generation is a lot cooler about drugs and recognizes that, you know, not every drug is good for everybody all the time. Some drugs are good for some people some of the time and not other people at all. It's a very, they're getting a much more sophisticated view than there was in the sort of like turn-on-the-world view of the 1960s. Yeah, well, it's unlikely in that context um, that you would get a, another Sid Barrett today, you know, somebody taking acid every day for, for weeks on end and losing his mind. That's something seems that now seems very much of its era. It certainly does. It's very, by the way, you know, you have to take enormously increased doses of psychedelics because they develop like a two or three day resistance. And you have to double it every dose 
to get the same effect. I think you'd have to start off. I wouldn't maybe I shouldn't say crazy, but I, but not being very rational to even try something like that. Actually, one of the things that's going on now is something called tinning, and this is taking a very low dose, like say 10 micrograms, every couple of days to work on one's thinking. Jim Fadiman would be a person to talk about that. He he has been collecting stories of that. It'd be a very good interview, by the way. We'll come on to the lower dose kind of benefits where you're not really aiming for, you know, to have a mind-bending trip as such. We'll, we'll get to that shortly. Yeah, in terms of, the, you said of his political agenda really behind drug laws, not health ones. I mean, every age kind of chooses its drugs to have legal and, and certainly in the industrialized West, we've chosen alcohol and tobacco and that's what the masses do. And it has been different in the past and no doubt it'll be different in the future. Yes, that's certainly true. Well, I'm sitting here right now um, taking some of my favorite psychoactive drug now, caffeine, a tea. So well, ex- exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's one. In, what, in fact, when tea started out, it was treated very much the way we treat psychedelic drugs and marijuana now. It was a very suspect sort of thing to have, and one shouldn't have it, and it was smuggled in and sold illegally and all kinds of things. And here we are sort of teeing coffee drinkers all over the world now. Yeah, and you look at the... Um sort of, you know, laudanum in Victorian England and uh, yeah. um, the fact that, you know, sort of and cocaine was in so many products back then and marijuana was only quite arbitrarily made illegal in the early 20th century, just rolled in with some other things. It, as you say, it, it's 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 political and other experiences. It's not really to do with hard facts and common sense and experience. But there are also very well-meaning people um, who are um, sort of anti-drug because of the things they've heard. I mean, they're not trying to be politically powerful. They're just, because some people are allergic to, to particular drugs that are, you know, like if there are people who are allergic to aspirin and penicillin and so forth. So there are bad effects. And any drug, in fact, any, any food like peanuts can have deleterious effects for some people. So I mean, they, they are seriously, honestly worried but I think their worry should be more based on evidence rather than just sort of scare stories that are in the media. Well, it can be hard, and this is where researchers come in here, that at times it can be hard to get good factual information when it's dressed up in a lot of um, tabloid kind of hysteria. That's true, and that's one of the good things about, um, one of the things that's going on now is, is that good scientific journals and general journals like um, uh, Scientific American and The Economist have had uh, articles um, pointing out that psychedelics are sort of making a comeback responsibly. The Lancet probably is a leader in the, is the leader in the medical field to recognize that. They've had several articles over the past, past few years pointing out that responsible medical researchers are looking at the possible medical uses of psychedelics. I always ask people I have, have on in relation to psychedelics and themselves. It's something that, you know, people who have had psychedelic experiences can communicate with others who have had in a way that they can't with those who haven't but how would you characterize the experience i know you could probably talk for half a day and never really get there but just is there anything you could say that from your personal perspective characterized the experience for you well of course every trip is different but in general i've had some powerful mystical experiences but mostly it's been um sort of i i think of psychedelics as being psychomagnifiers 
Stan Gross calls them amplifiers. I'm more visually oriented, so I think of them as magnifiers. And they sort of they magnify both outside perceptions and, and things going on in one's mind. And what I'm particularly interested in is the use of psychedelics as tools to think with rather than just uh, perceptional, recreational things. And so that's the, the main thrust of my work right now, um, is to try to get people to see that they can be useful you know, intellectually and, and uh, scientifically and artistically, as well as just for the fun of it. Yeah, that is an important thrust of your book, as you point out, it, you know, it's going beyond even the, the mystical experience aspect of it, spiritual uh, experience into you know, into you know, working with the brain and function of the brain, different ways the brain operates. And again, we'll we'll come to that shortly. I mean, of course, there's many ways people can have mystical mystical experiences or what they perceive to be mystical or spiritual experiences. And psychedelics is just one potential route. And not every psychedelic experience, by any means, has a mystical component. But as I mentioned earlier, they they have played a key role in you know human development over millennia. And you do discuss the fact whether LSD experiences that are perceived as mystical actually have any real objective mystical component and whether, it, if it seems to be that way to the individual, that, that is sufficient. I think that is going to be one of the big topics and unresolved topic, topics probably forever. Um, this gets back to the... Well, first of all, by mystical experiences, we're not talking about sort of um, spooky uh, Halloween... Uh, Things are like like uh, zombies from outer space and invade the Bermuda Triangle. But in the psychology of religion, there's very specific meaning about a mystical experience, and um, that's the experience we're talking about. And the the, uh, the question is, um, do psychedelics used that way produce a mystical experience, or is it sort of a good facsimile, or is it not a facsimile at all? Now, of course, this is going to depend on the person and his, his or her mind at that time and the location as much as anything else. You know, set and setting and dose are the three big problems here. Um, I think that, um, well, actually, I come up with two questions. One is, yes, they are standard mystical experiences, and there's a, there's a standard scale called the mysticism scale that's used to have people report their mystical experiences and whether they have them naturally or through meditation or um, breathing techniques or psychedelics, they report more or less the same thing on the mysticism scale. So that's some evidence that it goes in that direction. But um, what it basically comes down to is an argument that mystical experiences must come only from God or can they be produced you know, through, let's say, uh, spiritual techniques like prayer and meditation and fasting, or can they be produced can, through psychedelics, and which ones are legitimate and which ones aren't legitimate. And the problem is, who knows enough about this field to answer that in, a, in an informed way? I don't really think anybody is, and that's one of the problems. Also, we get, if you start with the assumption that mystical experiences come only from God, okay, then, of course, psychedelics don't count, unless you want to say, gone by invented psychedelics so that we would have mystical experiences. Um, so this is a really complex area. Um, the word entheogen comes in here. And um, I'd like to reserve my use of the word entheogen for psychedelics used only in a spiritual sense. 
Some people use it as a, as a synonym for psychedelic. That was suggested originally. But I think we can talk about you know, the therapeutic effect of psychedelics, the artistic effect, the problem-solving, the theogenic use. So I would say that in, the word, in my own thinking, my own writing, I like to reserve the word entheogen for just the uh, religious or spiritual use of psychedelics. Of course, that word theo in the middle points out that it has to do with religious root. Yeah, this is a big problem. And basically what it comes down to is if, if you follow all these arguments, and that's largely what I did in this online archive that I put together of all the writing on religion and mystical experiences, um, with the exception of um, brain studies and its uh, weak on anthropology, is that people in their argument basically are restating the premises. And so what's really interesting and curious about this whole field is we can now do experimental studies. We don't have to rely on a translation of some saint having an experience hundreds or thousands of years ago or of anthropologists reporting what some tribe did somewhere a long while ago, but we can actually do experiments and see if people have mystical experiences, or it's better to say who have experiences that they call mystical, um, are willing to accept the idea that psychedelics can produce them um, after they've had the experience themselves. So does that idea then become more credible? And what I would really like to see is seminaries, divinity schools, and religious studies programs developing experimental labs so that their students would have some first-hand experience with this question rather than just reading about other people's experiences. And that would, that would give them you know, a really taste of the experience to see whether, they, whether it really they think it qualifies or they may think that other people might think it qualifies. So I, I'd see religious education as having an enormous opening here. I don't think they're going to take it very soon. But, well, there are, there are students, let's say, in seminaries who are doing psychedelics on their own, but it's not really part of the curriculum and they don't discuss it. But I think that's a huge possibility, and religious studies programs could, could have wonderful experimental courses. And, of course, people would have to be screened because psychedelics aren't right for everybody. They have to be prepared because the best of your mind knows what to expect. They should be accompanied during the experience, and then afterwards the monitors or somebody should help them integrate the experience. So I think that's one, that's one of the really exciting things about using psychedelics as a tool, and it's a tool for religious education or spiritual philosophy or whatever you want to call it. Well, there's a long answer to a very nice short question. <laughs> that's fine. Um, now you mentioned set and setting, and of course, in terms of whatever you're bringing to the experience, the psychedelic experience, your beliefs, be they religious or otherwise spiritual, and your expectations, whatever form those might take, can definitely affect the experience. Oh, without a doubt. And and also, sometimes completely unexpected things happen. And I'm case of the unexpected. Um, I was not expecting any sort of spiritual experience at all. And uh, I don't know, maybe my fourth or fifth trip or somewhere, I had a pretty blow-out mystical experience. I thought, well, what's going on here? Um, that's, and that's one of the things that sort of interested me in psychedelics. So for me, it was a 180-degree turn. Um, for some people, Houston Smith, the philosopher of religion, is an example of he had his 
um, assumptions uh, confirmed during a trip at Timothy Leary's house in 1961. And, and well, Benny Shannon, who's a professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, was uh, very much of an atheist and a skeptic. Uh, he went to South America, had ayahuasca several times, interviewed people, and then came back sort of understanding theism. So it can go any direction. And, and that's one of the curious things is, why does it affect some people some way and other people another way and the same person differently in different times? And uh, there are all kinds of great things to look at in this question. Whichever way it, the experience goes, and you mentioned this in the book, it, it does tend to change everything, not necessarily turning your world upside down, but it's a bit that old adage of the doors of perception, you know, once they're open. I mean, it's kind of like you can't un-experience what you've experienced and if it does affect you in so profoundly in some way from that point onwards. Yes, isn't that intriguing? And yet, um, that happens to a lot of people, and yet some people will have, you know, a blowout trip on Saturday afternoon and go back to being their own selves on Monday morning. Why some people and why not other people? Is it their expectations? Is it just what's going on in their mind at this particular time? I mean, all those things are things we need to look at. Or somebody might have a, you know, a blowout spiritual and theogenic experience one day, and then uh, the next trip uh, from the same batch, uh, same dose, just uh, like get into uh, music or flowers or the back of a stone. I mean, what what is it that's directing the attention and and, and accounting for the experiences? And this is what why I'm so interested in studying the human mind. It's a way to look at these experiences experiences and sort of expose them and, and feel what it's like from the inside when one is having them. One of the main beneficial aspects I've seen come out of psychedelic experiences of, of various types is a kind of a new way of seeing the world. And you see yourself as part of a interconnected whole. Materialism tends to matter less. A lot of people observe the fragility of what's around them and how abusive and neglectful we've been and this might sound a bit sort of uh, you know new agey but I speak to a lot of people and they all report some variation of this experience that they realize that fundamentally you know everything's connected and there are profound ramifications for that in how we actually conduct our lives individually and collectively. Yes that, that certainly is, is one of the things that comes out of it. When one drops one's uh, sense of identity with oneself one starts to identify more with uh, the whole world or other humans or even the whole cosmos. And so one's judgments and actions take on not just the question of what's in it for me, but am I acting responsibly for the world or for humanity? That certainly, yes, that certainly happens. Uh, and that's, that's one of the big value shifts that happens. And again, why for some people sometime and other people other time or, or some people will have the experience, try to live their life uh, in a more um, socially responsible way. Now, we don't live in a society that supports that very well. So after a while, they'll sort of drift back to being, you know, their own selves. And yet some people's values and motivations are entirely changed. Yeah, certainly some of the results of um, psychedelic studies that uh, I've read, um, a number of the subjects taking a more holistic view of themselves and the world and reality and becoming less concerned with the you know, material day-to-day concerns 
this affects their life in very practical ways. Quite often they'll go and get a different job or they'll want to do some sort of work that has meaning or to contribute to the well-being of the whole. Uh, or they'll just quit working really long hours that they previously had been doing just to buy stuff they didn't need. Yes, yes, those are those are very definitely the things that happen. There's a little bit of interesting research that supports that that came out of Johns Hopkins Medical School. Um, they gave a a long survey and that's called a persisting effects questionnaire. That's like hundreds of items long, and embedded in it were eight items that they call an altruism scale, basically the willingness to help other people and act so to to um, encourage others and support others. And they found that the people who had mystical experiences um, scored much higher than those who didn't have the mystical experience. So it wasn't just the drug itself, the data, but it was the mystical experience that's the main variable. And it's important to notice that what we're talking about is a psychological effect of an experience. It's not a drug effect, not a, not in the sense that if you take a drug, this is what's going to happen, and it being a bit only a biological thing, but it's the intervening importance of the type of experience the person has that really changes. And the mystical experience is the, is the big turning point in this. So one might have a mystical experience and become a very different kind of person, but without the mystical experience, that's very unlikely to happen. And of course, a lot of people who have not had these experiences, or Maslow might call them intense, long peak experiences, do psychedelics, and they think, well, everybody's going to have an experience like mine, and they won't understand other people have had their individual experiences, perhaps mystical experiences. So there's a lot of misunderstanding within the psychedelic community with people judging only from their own experience, but, of course, everybody's mind is different, and when you get into people's minds, you have different experiences. And, of course, we should mention just once again that there's various routes to having genuine mystical experiences. You can have them spontaneously, or you might get them through meditation, some other sort of spiritual practice, or a crazy night of drumming and dancing perhaps might do the trick. You know, And the fact that some psychedelic experiences can overlap somewhat with these other mystical states kind of lends credence to the idea that they, that they are genuine on some level, even if just for the individual. Yes, I, I, I mean, think you've just made a very important point. Now, most mystical experiences do not, do not and have not happened with psychedelics. This is like just one path. And, and all those other mind training techniques, the, um, you know, whether they might be a breathing technique or you mentioned drumming or any number of different things can produce mystical experiences. And the, uh, the spiritual traditions each have their own favorite way of doing this. So what we're getting is just a confirmation that one can, that these experiences do exist. They exist in non-drug ways as well as in drug ways. So the drug mystical experiences are not unique in the experience. They're just unique in the path to get there. Or, of course, if they're not legitimate, they may be sort of good facsimiles. But even if they are good facsimiles, we can learn a lot from a good facsimile. I mean, a lot of professional training is you know, working on cases, um, um, trying out situations that are uh, learning situations. So if psychedelics are legitimate mystical experiences, great. But even if they aren't, we still can learn a lot from them because they're very good simulations. So they would be, they would be educational in either case. 
Well, my first psychedelic experience brought me to an understanding which at the time I didn't realize was already out there in cutting edge science. Um, because at the time, this is going back 25 years, I hadn't read anything about quantum physics. But I came away with this understanding that when I later read some of the fundamentals of quantum physics, I went, well, that's kind of the realization I came to. So that made it very meaningful for me. And, you know, it's really affected how I see the world. I've never got into that physics angle. Um, I've tried reading some of Richard Kopler's earlier work, and somehow it just didn't resonate with me. And I think it's because although the same vocabulary is, might be used in theoretical physics and quantum physics as in religion and psychology, that the words are actually used differently. And a problem I have um, is the problem of generalizing from a, a small-scale physical quantum event to a, um, a person psychological event is that we've got all that chemistry, biology, electronics with emergent properties coming out in the meantime. So while I might feel you know, a sense of oneness with the cosmos, to me this doesn't give any evidence that um, the cosmos is all one or that you know this particular subatomic particle is related to everything else in the cosmos. To me those are different kind, different kind, different categories of things. And the same vocabulary like unity and uh, attached to everything applies to them, but that they're in different domains. And it's a, to me, it's a largely a language problem. Now, my problem with that is there are a lot of people whose views I greatly admire. Stan Groff, for example, does take the other view. So um, this has given me some uh, unresolved cognitive dissonance myself when I, I basically just sort of don't get it. So that's where I am on that question. Oh, well, I mean, I guess that's it's all legitimate, isn't it? Because everybody's just trying to move towards greater understanding and some paths are going to prove more fruitful than others. And, you know, some things will, research may fall by the wayside and others be taken up. You know, we, we none of us have the, the final answer yet and we possibly never will. Um, yeah, that's probably true. But it's worth thinking about. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's fascinating, if nothing else. Right, right. Another aspect that can be quite common with people who have one or more psychedelic experiences is their attitude towards death. Basically, they experience sometimes a great diminishment of the ego and sometimes even a form of ego death in the psychedelic experience. And at its most positive, that can change the way they think about the end of life, you know, where they've come from, what's going to happen. And for some people, um, perfectly healthy people, this can mean that they don't think about death in the same way they lose their fear of dying and as you point out just getting over a little bit and just touching upon the health aspect for some people who are actually terminally ill this can really be a game changer for them if they have access to some sort of psychedelic experience yes this is one of the i think one of the two ways the psychedelics will be used first i call it the hospice use uh, the other i think will be uh, ptsd post-traumatic stress disorder and I think those are the two ways they're going to be used in psychotherapy first. Um, for the, there's some really good research going on right now at uh, Bellevue Hospital, NYU Medical Center in New York, and Johns Hopkins in Philadelphia. And uh, I don't know if Charlie Grobe is doing any more at Harvey UCLA Hospital. But this is really some intriguing work. And um, 
people who have done this both recreationally and through their clinical research who have, again, it's the mystical experience that's the variable here, who have had mystical experiences, often drop their fear of death. Now, I think what's going on here, and this is just my speculation right now, is that a large part of the fear of death is sort of giving up your personal identity. That is, I will stop being Tom Roberts, okay? But on my whole life, of course, I've been me. So what does it mean if I let go of myself, if I'm no longer me? That, that, and, of course, one of the things people are afraid of are sort of losing their identity. It's, a, it's sort of a, a fear of, quote, going mad. Now, that fear of losing one's identity happens at death. And I think what happens is that people who have a powerful mystical experience have sort of a, a practice of ego death that they can sort of sort of they have they have they've experienced letting go of the ego of not being themselves of unidentifying so that aspect of death then you know disappears. Another thing is that in a mystical experience one often feels sort of uh, at one with the whole cosmos. And um, some religions um, present death as sort of becoming one with the cosmos, one with God, or some other way of saying that. And they've also had a a sort of practice session in that, and that that idea then becomes more credible. Again, that would be an interesting thing to study, to see if these ideas of of unity become more credible with people who have mystical experiences and who can now do experiments in that. We just don't have to wait for anecdotes to accumulate. Yeah, I think this is an absolutely intriguing thought. And I'm I'm not at all satisfied that my understanding is full of that. I have the feeling something else, other things are going on that I can't put my finger on. Now, we're talking about an extreme there, you know, someone being diagnosed as terminally ill. Could there be other potential benefits for general health and healing with psychedelics? Oh, yes, without without a doubt, yes. And also, um, they're beginning to um, have uh, volunteers in, in these hospice studies of people who are not terminal but have diseases um, that could become terminal diseases because you don't have to be a, a stage 4 terminal cancer patient to have anxiety about death. You can at, at stage 1. And in fact, um, from some psychologies, um, this fear of death is sort of built into being uh, a human. And, and then, of course, an intriguing idea I find, and this is very much of a speculation, is if you look at the um, information on spontaneous remissions, um, they often occur, and by no means always, but often occur um, with people who've had what we would call mystical experiences or a sense of transcending themselves, um, that somehow or other these experiences turn out to be very healthy. And my suspicion on this is what they do is that they boost the immune system. Um, We know the opposite happens. When somebody's life is going well and the relationships are rotten and the job is going poorly, the person actually is likely to get lots lots of different diseases. So does the opposite occur? If the person's life is going very well, or another way of saying it, if the person has extremely positive events, and this is where a mystical experience would come in, will this then boost the immune system? And there's most of the research in this field has looked at the effect of uh, stress 
on decreasing the strength of the immune system. The little bit that's out there that looks at positive experiences points out that it strengthens the immune system. Now, does it strengthen it only in overcoming stress, or does it boost it up a lot? And so um, if we have enough mystical experiences, will there be some cases, sort of statistically unusual, high number of cases, of people who have, you know, resolved or solved actual physical illnesses? That's the intriguing thing I have. And I hope that we could get people who would measure our immune or our immune system or actually volunteer subjects immune systems before they have experiences uh, during a peak experience and then my guess is it would be highest during the peak experience and then whether there might be a, a long-term immune system benefit that follows afterwards and I think this would be absolutely intriguing and if it's true that psych- the mystical experiences boost the immune system and the psychedelics can produce mystical experiences we have a very strong health argument for investigating psychedelics as ways to boost the immune system. Now, there are some anecdotes out there, but it's not weighty enough to be good. That's why I think this is a, an interesting speculation, but it really deserves to be chased down. Right, another related thing here is we talk about the placebo effect. You know, somebody can be given a, a sort of fake drugs and, um, and feel better and in many cases actually sort of get better. I think we shouldn't call them a placebo effect. I think we should call it placebo ability because the body actually does improve. Now, it's probably a mental effect on the body in overcoming the disease or illness or disability. But but people do improve. And it isn't just people being grateful patients and having you know good reports saying, oh, yes, doctor, I feel better. Now, that means that something real is going on. Okay. Now, a placebo is chosen because it has no effect. It's illogical suppose, to suppose that we call something a placebo effect when a placebo isn't supposed to have effect. So what we're, we've tapped into here is a natural healing system in the body. And is it possible to um, intensify, strengthen, that? Uh, I, I would call it placeboing, our placeboing ability. We ought to speak about people placeboing when they cure themselves. So psychedelics may be a, um, a step in that direction because they can, of course, it's always, sometimes, not always, not in every case, give people intense positive emotional experiences. And do those experiences then boost the immune system? I think this is something that really needs to be looked at. And you mentioned uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, of course, there's potential benefits for psychedelics in the area of um, addiction as well. Yes, that's probably going to be not one of the first, but one of the early ones. And, and again, it's not a, a drug effect. It's not an. Uh, it's not taking a drug that does, doesn't want you to use the alcohol or the addictive quality or that makes you sick if you take it. It's a drug that causes an effect, a psychological effect, and it's the psychological switch that makes the difference. And so this is a different model from the usual kind of drug model. And, of, and of course, there's a, there's a financial problem here. If you take a drug once or twice to get rid of your problem, it's not like most medical drugs that you'll take uh, you know, every day or even several times a day. So the problem here is, is it going to be worthwhile financially to develop this type of psychotherapy and, this, and these drugs 
if people are only going to do them once or twice or three times in their lifetime. Now, we mentioned earlier, and we're going to get to this, that one of the areas that most interests you is that of neural development, uh, where we can literally, in, perhaps in the future you've speculated, actually physically grow our brains. And you also present the multi-state theory of mind, which is most interesting. So perhaps you could tell us something about that. Yes. I look at psychedelics as um, a key to a much larger view of our minds. And, I mean, we've, we've been talking until now about how psychedelics affect our minds, things we might do with our minds, you know, health and problem solving and, and fear of death. But when we think about it, psychedelics are a very narrow slice of a much larger piece of the pie of psychoactive drugs. And these are both legal and illegal ones. What they do, of course, is they change our, 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 the way our minds work. Now, psychoactive drugs are just one of lots of ways of doing that. Of course, there's chanting and there's prayer and there's the martial arts and there's breathing routines and then there's, just, there's hypnosis, uh, different types of meditation. These are all what I call mind-body psychotechnologies. They are, that is, they are technologies for affecting how our body works. And we tend to think of technologies as just being, you know, computers and electronic stuff or biotechnology. But technology comes from the word technique. It's a, it's a method of doing something. So the psychotechnologies are techniques or methods for using our minds, actually our mind-brains together in different ways. So what we're looking at now is a much larger view of the human mind. And if we want to have a complete view of the human mind, we have to look at as every one of these psychotechnologies affects the human mind. Most research on the mind is done in our ordinary default awake state of consciousness. There's some nice exceptions now in sleep and meditation, and the field is coming along. But what we have to recognize is that psychedelics are just one part of a much larger field, and I, I call this the multi-state view of the human mind. A full view of our mind should include all the mind-body states we can produce and all the activities and skills that are in all those states. So it gives them a, an enormous view of the human mind compared with our just looking at just ordinary one state. And so a whole direction to look at, and this is an example of using psychedelics as a thinking tool, is to see them as just one tool in a whole case of similar mind-body tools. And um, in addition to the ones we have, and we're now we're importing them from other cultures, right, ayahuasca from South America, Ibogaine from, from Africa, you know, there, there's a a world trade in psychotechnologies as well as in cars and clothes and everything else. So when we put all those things together, um, we have an enormous area to look at and lots of new questions to ask. And this is the one I find most intriguing and a little scary, is that can we put these different psychotechnologies together in ways that haven't been put together before? New recipes or new compositions so to speak. So let's say we take um, ayahuasca and the sensory deprivation and maybe being in a lily tank and uh, perhaps listening to a certain type of music. Okay, would that produce a state that has not been produced before? A good analogy here are, are in the other fields. 
in physics we have the synthetic elements, elements that have been created in the lab by putting you know, electrons and neutrons together in new configurations. And in chemistry, we have synthetic chemistry, and they produce products like plastics that don't occur in nature, you know, putting chemicals together in new ways, new synthesis. And biology is just opening out a field called synthetic biology, which uses biological processes to create biological things that haven't existed before. In a sense, we get that through selective breeding but, and, and GMO, but this is taking the field even further. Now, I'm asking the question, are there synthetic mind-body states? Can we develop mind-body states that have not existed before? And if so, are they going to be good for anything? And might unusual abilities reside in them? Because part of this theory posits that all the abilities that we do, skills that we have, things we think, take place in their home mind-body states. They're sort of expressions of that state, like our thinking and talking now is an expression of the state we're in. So if we build new states where we find new abilities that we didn't know existed in those states, or this may be a clue to rare and unusual abilities. They might be rare and unusual because they reside in states we haven't looked in before. Parapsychological abilities are an example of that. Um, synesthesia, where colors become sound and sound becomes smells, is an example of that. So it may be that these rare and unusual abilities are rare and unusual just because they primarily reside in other mind-body states. So when we say something is possible or impossible, we have to sort of bracket that and say, from what we know about our ordinary awake state, this is possible or this impossible. But we'll have to recognize we can change that bracket and, and have to look in other states for other possible abilities. So this, this is what I find most intriguing about, about this possibility, is the idea not only of, of developing our ordinary state fully, developing other states fully, but also creating new synthetic states that have never been created before. An analogy I like to use here is that you know, programs are to computers as mind-body states are to minds, or another way of saying it is apps are to devices as psychotechnologies are to minds. And just as we can write a very large number of programs and apps and use our electronic devices more skillfully and in different ways, can we do the same thing with our minds? And what are we going to call these people? You know, neuro engineers or cognitive uh, creators or what. So I think that this is the direction. Now, this is a very long-term direction that we're headed in. This is not going to happen probably in my lifetime. But as we're getting more and more control over genetics, over the nervous system, over the, the biochemistry of our minds and the electronics of our bodies, these areas are, are possibilities kind of coming over the horizon. So that's, that's the big picture that I see. Now, most people, whether they've had psychedelics or not, will be aware of their influence in you know, music, art, literature, you know, over the years. Um, but you cite some studies and evidence of their effect on other types of creativity and invention and problem solving in all sorts of you know disciplines, uh, you know, in engineering and academic disciplines, and also in a, on an actual 
raising of levels of intelligence, however we you know measure that. Yes, um, um, one of the definitions of intelligence uh, is by a guy named Gardner, who's invented a theory called multiple intelligences. Uh, his definition is the ability to produce goods or services of value in a society. And um, there are enough leads of problem-solving the counter-psychedelics that, that would meet that example. Uh, for example, the PCR technique invented by Curie Mullis, the problem that biology had was samples were often so small that they couldn't do analysis of them. And uh, he developed a technique called the PCR technique that actually takes a very small sample and produces or grows a larger sample so so biologists and can do um, research on it. Um, and he said he was able to do that, to come up with that insight. And this is interesting, not because he had the insight while he was doing psychedelics, but on psychedelics he had learned to visualize and he carried the visualization ability back to his ordinary state. He could imagine, imagine himself, visualize himself inside his cell and watching, watching all the parts work together. And then he realized he could use those little construction skills to develop the PCR technique. And he got a Nobel Prize for this. And then in business, there's a, a fascinating one. Years ago, when computers were just starting, there were lots of companies that were developing languages, and they're all sort of fighting for the market. It's called trying to get self space, shelf space. If you have a product, uh, product you want to get it on store shelves. So this is getting people to know about your product and to use it. And so people were trying to develop new products. One company came up with the idea, actually a guy named Bob Wallace for this little unknown startup company, of um, giving it away and asking people to pay for it as much as they'd be willing to if they would. Well, most people used their program and didn't pay for it. Enough people did pay for it so that they were going to make a little bit of money. But what happened as a side effect of giving it away was it then became the standard language used in computers, and this little company is Microsoft. And that's how Microsoft got started. And Bob Wallace says that psychedelics gave him that different perspective to come up with this idea of shareware. So there, there are a lot of these intriguing things. Now, it seems to me a, a, something that ought to be started is some sort of center where people who are working on problems could go, you know, to, to work on their problems some more, to be, you know, prepared and screened and so forth and then work on that problem so that they can, you know, try to come up with solutions. And there's one study that was published in 1966 um, that did this. Um, Bill Harmon, that professor at Stanford that I mentioned, was in charge of the a program, and he brought in uh, professionals from various fields, designs, mathematics, architecture, physics, who have been working on problems but hadn't been able to to come up with solutions, to go through a, a, a one-day session of they would have um, either mescaline or LSD, work on their problem, get together with three other people and for a sort of a noon discussion and discuss the problem with the other three, then go back and work on them silently, alone. And um, they came up with a large number of solutions 
the problems that they have been working on. So these are not just sort of um, out of the air coming up with a solution, but the people have done a lot of preparation. And this is a matter of their being able to take a different perspective on the stuff they knew and come up with solutions. And so that's the, that's the only real experimental case. But they had, they had lots of good solutions. Jim Fadiman describes this in his, in his book called The Psychedelic Explorer, and he was one of the researchers. And in addition to describing the results, he also has some, some uh, interviews with the professionals who are working in the field. So that's the best report of this, Jim Fadiman's book, um, Psychedelic Explorer. Now, you mentioned synthetic biology and the potential for modifying, growing, evolving the human body. And there could be some people might align this somewhat with transhumanism. I just want to you know, see what your take on this is. I mean, for me, the transhumanist agenda, as espoused by sort of Ray Kurzweil and people like that, just for me personally, it misses the point because I think our essential selves are actually located beyond the body. So the idea of trying to have a human body living for a thousand years or forever doesn't actually make any sense. And also, as far as merging with machines and computer-based technology, I mean, I know we've got quantum computing coming down the line, but as things stands, as things stand rather, computers don't get meaning. You know, we've got very powerful computers now; they can crunch numbers like nobody's business, way beyond what humans can do in their current state. But to what extent do any of these computers, quote unquote, understand? the meaning of what they're doing. I don't think they, they do at all. They're just do, doing a mechanical task. Uh, yes, I'm, I've am i read most of the uh, Transhuman Reader by Moore and Vitamore and um, Kurzweil's book on how to build a mind. And I think they're, they definitely have identified fields, both biological and electronic, that are going to improve our lives. But I think that their view of the human mind, or the view of what it means to be human is limited Basically, all the people in the field are STEM uh, field, that is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics people. And they will understand us in as much as we get into those four categories. Um, unfortunately, I think they really miss the importance of the human body. For example, now I think that the, that the idea of sort of capturing one's cognition on a computer will happen to some extent, but not to a very not to the full extent that they think. And in fact, an interesting thing to find out will be to what extent can they do it and what extent can't they do it. This will give a clue of the difference between what a uh, machine can do and what a human can do. Also the difference between us as uh, carbon-based beings and machine as uh, silicone-based beings. Although nanotechnology is coming along with um, with nanocomputers. So that, that distance difference might be, not be so distinct. But uh, what I feel is part of being a human means to be, let's say, uh, hungry and horny and humorous and happy. Those are glandular things. Okay. Also, um, the PNI, psychoneuroimmunology, points out that a lot of what goes on in our bodies actually comes from our, our stomach, our, our, our torso. And they're going to have, they would have to somehow work that in there. And also part of being a human being, for example, uh, uh, knowing, for example, that you're going to die, um, how could that possibly be worked in with a sort of uh, 
cognitive system that will keep on growing itself. Also, let's suppose it's possible to, to take um, all of human cognition, somebody's cognition, and uh, put it in a, uh, in a computer. Well, as soon as that's done, we're going to be learning more about cognition because that field is growing so fast. So what had been done last year is going to be out of date this year. So we will be getting sort of proto or primitive types of our understanding of the human mind. So I'm I'm both enthusiastic about transhumanism. I think that they really have missed a lot of the uh, of the meat of what it means to have a human mind. For example, some of them are a very quite anti-mystical experience. And somehow I'd like to see transhumanism informed by the psychedelic community. The psychedelic community needs to be informed by transhumanism either or two. But I think that um, those two fields are, are looking at humans in a different way. One of the perspectives on this is if one looks at the, the current transhuman movement, I mentioned that it comes from the sort of the STEM technology background, and the human potential movement of the 1960s and 70s basically came out of a, a liberal arts background. And these are very different views of what it means to be a human and what should be developed. So I think the transhumanists are onto something, and I think they're onto something good, but I don't think what they're onto is as good as they think it is. Another problem is that whenever a group comes up with something of great benefit to humanity, they tend to overemphasize how soon it'll be taken up and how good it'll be to sort of over-evaluate. Now, this is true of every group. Now, it's true of transhumanists, too. So I think they're going to come up with things that are definitely going to be worthwhile and valuable, but I don't think they're going to be as worthwhile and valuable as they think they're going to be. That's the history of enthusiastic groups. Well, Thomas, there's so much more in your book than we would be able to get to in this hour. But perhaps we just close by thinking about you know some of what psychedelics potentially offer us as a species are, are very much needed now at this juncture in history, and maybe we could get your thoughts on the future of research because I know you close the book uh, with a very practical set section on trying to get psychedelic research taken more seriously and not shunned as taboo, and and even how to generate funding for it. Yes. Um... Well, this is part of what I'm trying to do is to, of course, get psychedelic ideas out to the general community. And um, I, I've been teaching a course in psychedelics since 1981. And if any of your listeners are interested, go ahead and do it. You know, there there's much less resistance than we imagine there is if you do it from a scholarly, scientific point of view of raising questions that need to be looked at. And also, there are people who are now in positions of power in academia and elsewhere who, as they say, were students in the 60s. So they understand what's going on. Now, the fundraising idea is probably the most controversial in there. Um, I think that, well, as I mentioned earlier, there isn't going to be money in producing the drugs if somebody takes them once or twice or three times a lifetime. I mean, a pharmaceutical company is not going to be interested in producing that type of drug. But the the real work in psychedelics and the real um, money in it is going to be in providing the sessions, just as there are, you know, 
psychotherapy sessions and dialysis centers, I think there's room for a company or uh, clinics that would provide these services on a professional basis. So you would have, you know, professionally qualified people who are guides and know how to take other people responsibly through the experience to screen out those who should not have the experience, to prepare people for the experience, and then guide them through it and help them integrate it. This is the model that's used in all the contemporary research right now. And I would take that model from out of labs and say, well, we ought to have a company that does this, and then mental health professionals or people solving problems or artists or people who want to uh, explore their spirituality would then go to this company and you know and be go through this process. So there would, ha- there would have to be probably two divisions. One would be a psychotherapy division that would talk about addictions, alcoholism, autism, all the things we've talked about, and a personal growth division that would be for problem solving, uh, exploring one's mind, artistic and religious uses. But the people running them would do this as a profession. So you wouldn't have to have a lot of amateurs trying to be professionals. Now, of course, that means you have to, they have to be trained as professionals, but this is just like every other medical specialty. We have specialists who are trained and who know how to handle situations and what to do and what not to do and so forth. So I think this is the way to go. And actually, I think it would be possible to raise a, a large amount of money when we consider the number of people who have done psychedelics. Uh, in the United States, it's, uh, well, if you take all the psychedelic people and half the MDMA people, and I've only used half the MDMA people because I'm assuming half of them have done psychedelics, we've got something over 30 million people. And if only 1% of those people were willing to invest $5,000, we would get over a billion, that's where it would be, a billion and a half dollars. And I think there are enough people out of that 30 million probably a lot more than 1%, but actually the number I've chosen is a little less than 1% to raise that money. So I think we need a, a, a venture capital firm or a business uh, development corporation to start looking at this. And then the money they raise can be used to you know, fund Johns Hopkins and VAPS and Bellevue and Harbor Hospital and all these places. I've, I've just mentioned the American ones that you know, to then provide money for this field to develop, because the lack of money is what's really slowing down the field now, that and public acceptance. Well, as mentioned, your book, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, is easily available online. Perhaps you'd like to tell people perhaps about your course that you mentioned, uh, your website, or just anything else you'd like to put out there. Yes, let me, let me mention my website first, because um, I have my course syllabuses on there, and articles, and uh, probably a dozen or more PowerPoint presentations, just the slides, not, not the speech. Um, it's very simple. It's NIU, as in Northern Illinois University, dot academia dot edu slash Thomas Roberts. And um, I put new things up. Um, next weekend, I'm going to be speaking at the Horizons Conference in New York, and I'll have these slides up there uh, a week from today, in fact. So that's the, that's the best way to get a hold of the work that I'm doing. And um, in the book, The Psychedelic Future of the Mind, 
what I've tried to do is collect these ideas. When I look at the research that's done, I'm not looking at the psychotherapy from a psychotherapeutic perspective, but I'm looking for little nuggets of information that tell us about what it means to be a human, directions that we might go. So it's a very forward-looking book, and it's clearly a speculative book. But I think I've been, I've tried to be it at least, responsible in the speculation to base it on evidence that really has come along, not just some, you know, some mild idea. So I, th I think there are great possibilities here. I, I assume, you know, most of your readers know about maps and Arrowhead. Those are definitely the websites to keep track of. Excellent. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, it's been fun. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's LegalizeFreedom.com legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests and if you're feeling generous make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.